Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton's Roundtable for Poverty Reduction and the SPCRC say the living wage for the city of Hamilton is now $16.45. We talk with some of the reps from both groups. MPP Andrea Horvath and I discuss overcrowding in Hamilton hospitals following her comments in Queen's Park yesterday. And if you haven't heard what the Premier said about Hamilton, well, get ready. Laura Babcock of Power Group and I have an in-depth conversation about them and about the response from some prominent Hamilton people, including the Arkells. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This week, the Social Planning and Research Council and the uh, Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction have revealed the new living wage for this city. Now, as we've talked about in past years, uh, this varies from community to community, obviously, because there are going to be different factors involved in that. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Tom Cooper from the Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Uh, Judy Travis is here from Living Wage Hamilton. Catherine Kalinowski is here from the Good Shepherd. Welcome all. Good to have you guys here today. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Uh, let's uh, avoid all the drama and get right to it. Uh, Tom, what's the new number? The new number, drum roll please, is $16.45. Okay. And that that's based on a calculation of real costs in the community, housing, food, um, ensuring people can get non-OHIP medical, transportation, child care. So it, it's really a community-based calculation. Uh, and you guys, Judy, are doing this all backwards. You're actually doing this from a, a practical standpoint as opposed to the government just coming up with a number out of thin air and said, here, that's how much you're going to get. Yeah, no, we look at what the actual costs are in our community. And we have a committee that c gets together and sort of challenges each other about what the costs really are. We also work with a, our, our calculator is a standardized one that's used across Canada. So, you know, we still look at our we look at our local numbers, and but we have a calculator that includes things like, you know, child tax benefit and things like that that, you know, it, it impacts the income of the family, right? Yeah, and, and I was being a little facetious, Catherine, when I was saying they just pull a number out of the air, but only a little facetious because, I mean, the, the government's calculations for this stuff is all way out of whack. It's usually outdated. It doesn't take all the factors in that, that, that you have for this particular thing here, which is why so many people are behind the eight ball. It's absolutely the case. Increasingly, we see in our community people who are working hard to uh, lead stable lives in our community but are not earning enough to do that, not enough to pay the rent and put food on the table, never mind some of the extras like ongoing professional development or education or something like recreation for themselves and their children. That's a good point uh, because of, uh, I get the pushback, and I'm sure you guys do too, every time we have these discussions. Well, you know, if they're having a rough time, why don't they just go get a better job? They're trying. Yeah. Absolutely. People are trying. And I think that uh, the increase in part-time employment, precarious employment, and low-wage jobs is, is a significant factor for people. We often see people in our food bank, for example, who are working not one job, but two jobs, three jobs, even more within their family unit to keep body and soul together. And there's so many other factors that are involved in this, Tom. Obviously, we can talk about food banks, and so we can talk about whether you can even make the rent payment on a regular basis. But let's let's tie some of these other stories that we've talked about over the last couple of years as well. Uh, people that are in a precarious financial situation like that uh, better not get sick. Yeah, absolutely. And many employers out there aren't providing uh, extended benefits for their workers. So uh, it's it's becomes increasingly difficult to keep yourself healthy if you can't afford medicine. And as a result of that, we see more low-wage workers particularly getting sick, having to take time off work, and that's having a huge impact not only on, on themselves, on their own health and their family's financial well-being, but certainly their company as well, uh, who need to replace those workers in the short term. And, and so what we're saying is that living wage makes financial sense. It's obviously good for the workers who are earning enough to pull themselves and their families out of poverty, but it's good for businesses too, because we have less absenteeism, healthier employees, and more productive employees as well. And it's not as if we're talking in the hypothetical here, really, I mean, because there was an example from a previous government where we actually instituted a wage, and there was a pilot project, and Hamilton was part of that, and we saw a marked improvement in a lot of the people who took part in that program. Yeah, I, I think it was, I, I think that was sort of the positive way forward. But, you know, I mean, we've seen what's happened overall for, across Ontario with the current government, and uh, it's not surprising in some ways. But, you know, I mean, we really do need to start thinking about, you know, the fact that, as Catherine mentioned, 
there's an increasing number of low-wage jobs in our community that are uh, my organization is workforce planning Hamilton and my you know my and we where we look at those kinds of things and we see the number of low-wage jobs are growing faster than the high-skilled jobs and they just don't pay enough, so many of them, all the kinds of service sector jobs that we, we rely on when we go and get our coffee and things like that. But those people are not making enough to to live a decent life. And, and there's the disconnect there, isn't there? I mean, you know, we, you've got a government that in isolation says, okay, we're going to cancel that program because we didn't see it any benefit because they didn't read the reports. Uh, and then they canceled the, the increase in, in the minimum wage, which which is supposed to occur as well. Uh, and they don't seem to understand the, the ramifications of what this does. It just makes that gap even longer and, and larger for people that are trying to make ends meet. Yeah, I think it's really important to understand that living wage is a tool in the fight against poverty. Um, it's not the magic bullet. It's not the magic bullet. It's one piece of a, a range of strategies that are required. I think we have to challenge ourselves as employers, as members of a community, as members of this province, to say what what level of dignity, what standard of life is reasonable for our for our neighbors, for citizens in this community, for our employees, and expecting people to work and to work hard and invest in your business or your operation and not be able to meet their basic needs is really not acceptable. The, uh, the good news, I guess, and, and this is heartening anyway, Tom, is that there are some employers that, that take this to heart and, and have committed to it to the living wage program. Oh, absolutely. And we've been, we've been thrilled with uh, champions in Hamilton who have stepped up uh, in, in the private sector, uh, Cake and Loaf Bakery is a, is a fantastic example. When they adopted living wage, uh, not only did they hire more employees, but they opened they opened a second location as well. Uh, Catherine and her organization, Good Shepherd Centers, have been one of our tremendous uh, supporters in the nonprofit charitable sector. Uh, they have more than 500 employees, all earning a living wage, and certainly uh, those stories have helped encourage other employers right across the community and across the province, really, to step up and say, yeah, we can do this too. Well, because there was a great deal of consternation and, and maybe even a little more fear-mongering uh, when the previous government instituted that policy, that pilot project, because they said it was going to kill the economy, it was going to kill small business. And, and lo and behold, uh, more jobs were actually created as a result of that. Yeah, and we, we had a provincial government uh, a couple of years, years ago that committed to uh, improve the minimum wage to $15 an hour. It was frozen by the new provincial government at $14, but we saw the impact of, of those increasing wages. It was more job growth, more disposable income for employees, more money was being spent in the community, and that's good for local economic development. So it was really a good news story that was that was stifled uh, by a policy decision by the new provincial government. Well, Judy, and again, I want to go back to this idea about fear-mongering, because oh. in, in the absence of any any hard facts, uh, people speculate and they, they just think, well, and it, a lot of the business and the precarious employment opportunities, uh, they thought were going to be negatively impacted. But then we had some of these CEOs from some of these places, uh, fast food restaurants, mm -hmm. donut and coffee shops that actually said, my God, this extra money that they're getting, they're spending it at my store. <laughs> yes, exactly. I need more employees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that that's it. I mean, there there is a real positive spin off, you know, for for the for to give those folks that money locally. You know, like for the local businesses and things like that, they all reap the benefits of that. <clears throat> so it's not it's not a net loss, but a net gain for for our overall community, for families themselves. You know, I mean, it, to they have more dignity. And as as Tom outlined, I mean, there are benefits for the businesses that pay a living wage to their employees. I mean, they've they've actually done research that shows that you know the improved health of their employees, the improved productivity. You know. Those kinds of things are are really are really a measurable benefit for the employers that that pay a living wage. There are other jurisdictions that do this on a pretty regular basis, and they're, they're the ones that we're kind of looking up at every time we see these statistical studies about uh, who's healthier, who's better educated, uh, who's more productive in the workforce. Uh, oftentimes, it's well a lot of the Scandinavian countries, even over in the UK, uh, where they do something like this, and and. Uh, <laughs> There have been some pretty small C and large C conservative governments over in the UK in the last mm -hmm. little while. 
uh, including the guy that's there now. Uh, <laughs> but they they will not touch this. Yeah. They they just know that no 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 this is enshrined. This is what we need to do in this country. So even even the extreme right wingers over there are simply saying yeah that's that's part of our lifestyle now. Yeah, absolutely. And we you know we've we've uh, we've had conversations with the folks over in the UK about their living wage and and the the number of employers that have adopted it. I mean it's a real movement there in their country. Um, so you know I think I think we we need to get more people on board. That's really what our our, our pushes for today, our ask is of community, if the community is for employers to step up and, and declare themselves as living wage employers and uh, be in touch with us and, and uh, we'll, we'll get them on the road to recognition. And, you know, I mean, I think there's a real benefit, I mean, for their image and, and that sort of thing. I mean, as a progressive employer who who pays living wage, I think is is really something that they would want to market. It's you know it's a tough time out there for employers looking for employees. They need things to to sell to sell themselves to their future employees. Millennials in particular are very uh, you know engaged in in sort of the activism type of thing, and and those kinds of things really make an impression on them. So if they're bring, looking to bring in the young workers and things like that, those kinds of things will really make an impact on on you know on their ability to recruit you know workers because i've heard stories anecdotally and, and from employers actually catherine that'll say you know it's hard to hang on to people you know they they you know they're there for two weeks and they quit and they, but i said well you know what are you paying them if if they if they get a paycheck that they, is going to cover their expenses and they, a place for them to live and, and maybe i don't know eat meals and things like that uh, they're going to be happier employees, but if they're not, they're looking for another job, as you say, sometimes second and maybe sometimes even a third job, which means that they can't always be available when that first employer wants them. There's there's a vicious cycle that that, that is happening here, and and you know, of course, with the work that you guys do at Good Shepherd and and all of us, I guess, since we've done so many discussions about this over the years, understand that uh, that these are people that are trying to better their their situations uh, but you know, it just seems like every time they think they're getting out of the hole somebody just you know digs the hole deeper well usually it's a government policy that does that but but it's it's not as if you know there are people that are just sitting there on the couch saying well come on somebody help me here yeah I think that uh, um, it's a very powerful message to give to your employees that we are a living wage employer even people in the organization who are earning well above the living wage rate as it's been established, where that I think is a badge of honor. As a not-for-profit who's dedicated to addressing issues of poverty and inclusion in our community, it's also a moral imperative that we be a living wage employer. But when you roll it back and you look at it, the simple fact is investing in living wage, paying a living wage, has huge bottom line benefits for any community. Um, uh, better pay means better health, means more productivity, means less absenteeism, and as we've already talked about, more uh, uh, money flowing in our economy. It benefits across the board. And uh, I, I just can't say strongly enough, it's a win-win proposition. Well, because the people that are going to be beneficiaries of this, those the employees, uh, Tom, they don't stick the money in their Cayman account. Uh, all right? there's, there's no offshore stuff going on here. Uh, no, they go to the grocery store. Yeah, this is money that is spent locally in the community. And as, as, as we've talked about, it, it's improving economic development for the community as a whole. So we really need to, uh, I, I think, talk about those community-wide benefits of paying a living wage to all our employees and, and send out a challenge as well to our big employers in the city, the big public sector institutions who have come part of the way in some cases and some cases haven't even gone that far uh, towards implementing a living wage. So I think it's a challenge to them. It's a challenge to listeners and to community members to, to really talk to the places that you shop, that you frequent, uh, that you use services at to say, hey, are all the employees here earning a living wage? Don't you believe that everybody deserves who's working deserves to be uh, moved out of poverty. Well, and you, you mentioned millennials, Judy, and I yeah. mean, uh, we see that on a pretty consistent basis. I mean, you know, I, I know, I know a lot of them. Uh, they won't buy coffee there because it's not fair trade. They're exactly. going to go over here instead. And they don't mind paying a little bit more for it, by the way, because of, of that principle. Well, that's another question they should be asking. Uh, yeah, fair trade, that's a very good idea. That's that's something that, that you need to keep in mind. But what about the wage that you're paying the employees here? And you know, let's talk about that as well. And invariably, by the way, oftentimes you find out that the, that place that they're going to probably already has 
uh, a living wage. I mean, th- th- these are all things that we have to do. I guess the sad part about this whole thing is the one partner that we really need uh, to try to get this message across is the government, and they've really just abandoned this altogether. It's, it makes the job a lot harder. Yeah, well, they've completely walked away. I mean, they've recently announced that there's no, no they're not willing to even consider increasing the, as uh, we were looking at a staged approach yeah. to 15, and they're, they're, walking, they're walking that back completely. And, you know, I mean, they really don't seem to care about that those workers that are out there that are that are that are struggling like that i mean the uh, the other thing that i find extremely disturbing is there was some really positive changes made to the employment standards act around scheduling of work and so on and so forth and and they walked that all back and 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 uh, and so you know those kinds of precarious workers that that Catherine was talking about are, you know, are even, you know, it, not only not only are they not being paid enough, but you know, the employers have the upper hand in terms of all of their, you know, their scheduling and things like that. And it's 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 brutal out there for some of them. Well, it is because I mean, you know, the days of of a steady job for the next 25, 30 years with benefits. Uh, and va- paid vacations, et cetera, et cetera, it, it just, that, that's shrinking, if it even exists at all for most places and most employees these days. Uh, oftentimes, uh, I, I think some people, I know some people that have jobs where you just don't get holidays. Mm-hmm. You don't go to work, you don't get paid, so they can't afford to take holidays. Uh, and we know about some of the other challenges that they're facing these days, and one of them, of course, is no benefits. And we talked about prescription drugs as one aspect. But there's so many other things, too. Uh, what about dental work? It adds up, and then people are going to have to make choices. Do I pay the rent? Do I pay the hydro bill? Or do I get that filling fixed in my tooth? There's, and the other thing that you know, we don't actually build into the calculation is debt. And there is so much, you know, we know that there's high levels of debt out there amongst amongst uh, folks. And and so we don't have we don't have. So there's even that small living wage may actually be reducing, reducing debt as well. And of course, you know, it's not it's not like you're you're buying you have a mortgage. I mean, we're calcul- the calculation is based on rental housing. So, um, you know, you're not going to be building a- equity in a house or that sort of thing with your monthly payments. So, I mean, it really is, uh, you know, there's no money in our calculation for, for retirement savings. And, you know, we know that more, more and more employers don't offer, you know, pensions to their employees. So, you know, down the road, well, there's going to be a cost to this as well, right? Well, and there's another element to this, too, that Tom and I have had many discussions about over the years, too, is if you find somebody who's short, you know, because they just don't have enough money or or they've got to get this this tooth fixed or they've got to get that prescription, bingo, off they go to a payday loan store. And that that just exacerbates the problem. So this is, as as Catherine, I think, so aptly put it, this is not the, the solution, but it's certainly part of the solution. Right. And uh, the number is $16.45. Uh, if they want to get details, where is this up on the webpage? Yeah, it's at www.livingwage.ca. Uh, so employers who are interested in signing up can can go online, find out more about the program, and we will come out and, and visit them and give them a nice sticker if they agree to pay a living wage. Uh, yeah. Congratulations, guys, on all the great work that you're doing on this, and, uh, and keep it up. Uh, we certainly need it in this community. Thanks for coming in today. Okay. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a uh, weird and wacky day at Queen's Park yesterday. Well, I guess that happens more often than not in the last little while anyway. Uh, We're going to get to some of the comments that the Premier made about our beloved city in uh, just a couple of minutes. But uh, also yesterday uh, at Queen's Park, Andrew Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP and, of course, opposition leader in the, uh, the legislature, uh, called on the government for action when it comes to hospital overcrowding. Now, she referenced uh, Jerevinsky Hospital uh, because, uh, well, they finally got some statistics out of this, which, uh, I, well, I think we need to talk about, quite frankly. Uh, Andrea Horvath joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Andrea. How are you doing today? I'm well, thanks, Bill. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great, uh, and I'm glad I am, because if I had to go into the hospital right now, I think we'd have some problems here in this city. I'm, I'm looking at some of the stats here from this uh, uh, request that you made. Uh, yep. Doug Ford promised to end hallway medicine. How's that working out? 
Well, it's not working out so great so far. Uh, you know, we all know that the Liberals left health care kind of hanging by a string, but the problem is the Tories came in and they're cutting that string off. Uh, the bottom line is they're doing exactly what the Liberals did. They're underfunding our hospitals and our health care system, uh, and it's taking hallway medicine uh, from uh, from bad to worse. It's, it's quite quite frightening, and you know what that means, right? The horror stories that people share about their experiences in our hospitals are, are becoming, you know, worse. Uh, you know, people spending days on end in emergency wards with no dignity, with no privacy, you know, with no call bell for a nurse, with no private washrooms. Uh, the stories are uh, unbelievable. I mean, kids that are sick and, uh, you know, parents trying to co- comfort them while they wait for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on end just to see that first visit with the doctor. I mean, it's just, it's horrifying. You know what they're going to have to do here? I, I'm looking at this. Jerevinsky, by the way, is at 110.8% uh, 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 occupancy. Uh, and the other ones are not too far behind. General's at 97%, uh, 83% for Mumsy. Uh, West Lincoln is at 90%. You know, the one thing they're probably going to have to do, Andrew, is put no vacancy signs like they do in the motels. Just say, don't even come here anymore because there's just no room for you. Well, I mean, uh, that's a serious problem. And, of course, we've seen how this plays out with the um, with the ambulance service and the paramedics. And, of course, the union was raising the alarm bells uh, not so long ago about that issue, about the hospitals uh, not being able to take the patients off of the um, off of the paramedics once they're there. And so ambulances are stuck, and we end up with the code zeros that we're getting, which is frightening to know that there's not an ambulance available uh, at, uh, at any given time in case an emergency occur. I mean, it, the whole system has completely fallen apart. And again, um, you know, there's no doubt that the Liberals did a lot of damage. The problem is the Conservatives promised they were going to fix it. The Premier's, you know, talking out of his hat saying it's going to be fixed by next summer. And of course, everybody knows that that's not true. And and when you look at what they've done, I mean, the Ontario Hospital Association, again, in this last budget cycle in the spring, asked the government uh, for, you know, almost $700 million, $685 million uh, just to keep the broken system limping along. And just like the Liberals before them, the Conservatives shorted the uh, the request by half, so they only funded you know about three hundred and sixty million dollars. I mean, it's just it's not you can't it can't function that way. I mean, it, you know, we, we the financial accountability officer pegs uh, healthcare interest rates, uh, like you know the the um, not the interest rates, but the uh, the inflation rates on healthcare to be about four point three percent annually. Normal inflation is about one point nine. In fact, in the gov- in the government's own budget, they pegged the projection for inflation rates at 1.9%, and then they proceeded to fund health care at 1.6% increase. Well, <laughs> if you're not even funding to inflationary pressures, um, you're, you're, it's a huge cut. I mean, it's not even frozen budgets. It's cut, cut, cutting budgets, and that's, uh, of course, uh, something that's causing this situation to get worse. And, and you know, the people deserve so much better than that. Well, and, and we, we have to do this, and I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, because you can't look at this in isolation. I mean, and these are startling statistics, and this is bad enough when you start looking at, at, at the occupancy rates in hospitals themselves. Uh, acute beds, and, and you go down the list of this, but it, it has an impact on everything else. As you mentioned, there's a, there's a big backlog now in emergency rooms, which means that ambulances are stuck, as you say. We just talked with Mario Pastorero from from the, that union just a, a couple of days ago. Yeah. It, sadly, Andrea, we're talking about code zeros now as if it's the new normal. One is one too many, and we're having these on a pretty regular basis now. No, no, it's it's awful. It's frightening, and I mean, and, and the worrisome thing that uh, that I think makes this problem worse is we all know that there's an issue with ALC patients. Uh, not that it's their fault. It certainly is not their fault. Uh, but uh, the patients are. are stuck in hospitals because there's not a long-term not enough long-term care beds and we have a government that's announcing the same beds that the previous government announced and never built like in, in over a year what 16 months in office uh, the provincial government the new government the Ford government has only built 21 long-term care beds while the the rate uh, rather rather the wait list for long-term care in that same time frame grew by 2,800 people waiting for long-term care 
Uh, you know, even their plan for 15,000 new beds, which the FAO said is a good start, uh, first of all, that's if the beds actually get built. The, the Liberals promised 15,000 new beds. Those built beds never got built. The Conservatives are reannouncing the beds, uh, but, but you know, the, the, the beds actually have to come online. You can't just announce them and, you know, cut ribbons and repeat what the previous MPP that was a Liberal in your riding uh, did, the, you know, last time around. I mean, you have to get those beds beds built. And to have the Minister of Long-Term Care suggest that it's going to take 36 months to get these beds built, well, shame on them. If they've already been, if thousands of them, literally 5,000 of them, have already been announced by the Liberals, uh, then you would think uh, that they would be into a process that would have those beds built a lot sooner. So uh, I'm very, very concerned, Bill, that things are just going to get worse and and, uh, and our loved ones and ourselves are, are going to be in jeopardy. And the, and the people on the front lines, you know, whether it's a paramedic or, or whether it's a nurse or a PSW or a doctor, I mean, they're running off their feet. They're stressed to the max. They're, well, and that's, 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 an important, they can. that's an important point. I was talking to a general manager of one of those facilities a little while ago. This was just after they re-announced one of those announcements again. And, and his first comment to me was, where's the money for staffing? You know, they're saying, okay, we're going to allocate another 40 beds, for instance, to that facility. If you don't have staffing for it, it's not much good to you because they, people that are there, they're short-staffed already. you got a problem. No, I know. And on the long, in the long-term care sector, and, and you know, you, you would know this because the city uh, raised it uh, with the province. I mean, they've cu- they're cutting $34 million from long-term care over this next year. So when we have a long-term care system that's already imploding, right, where, where people aren't getting the hands-on care that they need, where we've heard horror stories from long-term care facilities in Hamilton and, and really around the province, you know, how can you cut $34 million uh, from uh, from those facilities that help our most vulnerable uh, loved ones in their final years to, to, to kind of live out their final years with some dignity. I mean, it's it's... I mean, it's it's just troubling, and and you know, this is what happens when a when a when a premier uh, gets elected who 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 refused to tell the people of Ontario what the plan was, right? I mean, he got elected with a blank check, and now he's um you know he's sticking it to uh to Ontarians and, and to people who are really really worried about the future of our healthcare system. It's it's the most important public service uh, that people um, identify regularly in polling and in, in questionnaires. What's the most important public services the government provides, and it's healthcare. So let's do something about that. Let's actually start making our healthcare system, uh, you know, be there for us when we need it, where we need it. Because what's happening in Hamilton, sadly, is happening in Sudbury, and it's happening in London, and it's happening in Ottawa, and it's happening in Timmins, and it's happening in Kenora, it's happening in Windsor. It's everywhere. Are you waiting for the other shoe to drop here uh, when it comes to, to, to the spending and what this government's doing? And, and the reason I'm asking, Andrea, is uh, is we both lived through uh, 20 years ago in the Common Sense mm-hmm. Revolution. Uh, and we saw hospitals close in, in that particular mm-hmm. situation, and, and they were in crisis mode even back then. Uh, yeah. Some of those same people that were involved in those decisions with the Harris government are on this special panel that Doug Ford has put together. And, and, and I, I've talked to a number of administrators and people in senior management positions, and they're very concerned about this, that we may see that, because this is a government, as you well know, that is obsessed with the bottom line. Uh, not necessarily about quality of service, but the bottom line. And uh, if that's the case, uh, who knows what's going to happen next? Oh, you're right. I mean, they are absolutely uh, following the same playbook. Uh, and that playbook led in the Harris government to the closure of 26 hospitals and the laying off of 6,000 nurses. That's what the Harris government did. And you're, and these, it's the same players. It's the exact same uh, advisors and it, it's the playbook. I mean, it's exactly what conservatives always do. And it's, it's interesting that you asked that question uh, today or you, you put that out there today because today's the fall economic statement. Yeah. So we're going to see what happens. It's kind of like the fall mini budget update uh, and the government's going to, uh, you know, uh, Rod Phillips, the new finance minister is going to, uh, you know, kind of lay out the roadmap of what the next uh, number of months are going to be like and, and where the deficit is and, and how, um, you know, how they're going to try to do what they're, as you said, very obsessed with, which is uh, to get rid of the deficit regardless of how much pain it causes uh, families and communities. And you know what? If you're a high-income person, if you make a really great salary and you're, uh, you're doing really, really well, then you don't have to worry about any of this stuff because you can go buy your health care uh, somewhere else. 
uh, but for everyday families and for the vast majority of Ontarians and Hamiltonians, hardworking folks uh, that uh, that deserve to have you know decent health care, those are the, the the people that are going to feel the brunt brunt of it, right? Those are the people whose health care is going to continue to erode. Those are the people whose kids are not going to get the quality of education they deserve. Uh, those are the ki- people whose uh, you know loved ones and family members are not going to be able to get uh, access to long-term care, and that that uh, you know that's going to cause challenges and difficulties for families who are trying to do do right by their loved ones. I mean, the whole thing is is uh, very, very troubling, but it's that's who Conservatives govern for. They govern for uh, the few, uh, and the, the rest of us are left uh, to our own devices. All right. I, I'm going to do this in the next segment, but since I've got you here and you were there yesterday, I want to get your comment about uh, some of the comments that the Premier made yesterday. Uh, I've known you for a long time. You're a proud Hamiltonian. Uh, and But the problem here, Andrea, is apparently, according to the Premier, you're one of those socialists that's destroying Hamilton. Oh, how outrageous. I mean, really, I was so insulted, and every single Hamiltonian uh, should be insulted by the behavior of this Premier. I mean, it's bad enough that someone who is the Premier of Ontario calls any community uh, destroyed. Do you know what I mean? That that speaks with such pejorative terms about any community. That a Premier would do that is I mean, it's it's just outrageous. But, you know, for him to say that about our community, our community's doing great. Hamilton is a great city. I call it the city with a soul. We are an amazing community. Uh, we take care of one another. We have each other's backs. Uh, and when things, you know, when things are, uh, are not looking great, we, we pull together and we help uh, people in need. And uh, things, you know, have been turning around, which is great in many ways. We still know that there are issues, you know, with things like uh, homelessness and uh, an inability for people to find affordable housing uh, and those, those people. And we don't walk away from that stuff. We 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 take you know we take responsibility of it. We stare it down and we try to fix it. Uh, and so for the premier to say these kinds of things is uh, is absolutely you know disgusting. And he owes the people of Hamilton an apology. That's what he does. He owes the people of Hamilton an apology. And he should be helping by you know funding our schools better and by funding our hospitals better and by helping us build more affordable housing, uh, not by by acting in such a petty way and and hurling insults because I'm. Unfortunately, that's all he knows how to do. Well, and uns- unsubstantiated accusations and, and, you know, taking credit for things that really they had nothing at all to do with. Uh, and we know that this is a city that has some major challenges. Uh, but we've, you know, let's face it, I mean, the, the statistics are right here. I mean, you know, this is a city now that's considered to be one of the best cities in Canada in which to invest. This is a city that's seen growth. It's got the most diverse economy in the, in the nation right now of any yeah. other city. On and on it goes. But So, so yeah. to, use, to use a word like destroyed, is, uh, if he just wants to say, hey, I don't like the fact that you guys don't elect my party, so that's one thing. I can see that, uh-huh. uh, exactly. and, which I think is at the root of this whole thing. But it's to, oh, to, to, to suggest that we're on our last legs right now is, is was, well, I'm sorry, it's, it's total crap to, to well, even I mean, suggest it, something it, it, like that. Exactly, and it's, it shows how ignorant he is of the reality of what's happening in Hamilton. And 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 again, I mean, it, he can't he can't get up on one hand and and you know take credit for the jobs that are be, being created in our city, and then turn around and say our city's destroyed. Well, which one is it, Mr. Premier? So it just shows that the uh, unfortunately the nature of this premier is uh, is one that's not about facts and not about uh, uh, you know about uh, helping out communities and not about you know being um, you know having that dignity of office that you would expect from a premier, uh, you know, quite the opposite, uh, quite the opposite. But unfortunately, he's got the power uh, that, um, you know, that uh, enables him to make life harder for folks instead of using that power to make life better for folks. Yeah, but here's the thing. This is the same guy that 24 hours before that said that he's never seen the country more split up and, and, you know, we've got to do something to unify this. Uh, Really? That, That lasted about 45 minutes. No, exactly, exactly. He's. It's. I. I made a comment yesterday. It's. It's like the. You know, asking the divider in chief to somehow be the person that's going to help uh, with unity. It doesn't make any sense. So he's. He's. His whole mo is about uh, pitting people against each other, creating chaos, uh, creating division. Uh, and so, I mean, the, I think the other, you know, issue around that. Um, that you know, salvo that he put out there that he's going to help uh, unify the country is that he used it for a fundraising pitch. Like he used it to shake down uh, people for a toonie. <laughs> That's, so he, he put out a big fundraising, I don't know if you know, there's a big oh, fundraising yeah, yeah, I saw the uh, request, right? I mean, and, and that just, it just sullies the whole sentiment in the first place. I mean, it's, it's really, um, it's really, it continues to be a big disappointment uh, the way this premier um, behaves and, uh, and his priorities. 
Andrea Horvath, uh, opposition leader, of course. Uh, going to be a rollicking time at uh, Queen's Park over the next couple of days. Thanks for the time today, Andrea. Well, thanks, Bill, and I'm going to go back to my weird and wacky world, as you described it. There you go. In the send-off, or in the beginning. Okay, try not, care, to, try not to Have destroy anything else today, okay? <laughs> I'll try not to. You too. Andrea Horvath. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Weird, weird scene yesterday. And, and by the way, just I want to set this up for just a second so you understand how this goes. Uh, the Premier's comments were all in response to a question that uh, a, a Conservative MPP, Donna Skelly from this area, asked. And any time a government MPP stands up and asks a question in question period, you might as well turn the sound. It's a softball question just to make the government look good. These are all pre-designed, and, and that's obviously what was going on here. Um, and uh, and Donna Skelly uh, was talking about recent investments that are happening in the city, uh, which, by the way, started a long time before the Ford government ever got elected. But be that as it might for a second, we'll get into that in a minute. And uh, the premier got up to respond to the question, and, uh, well, this is what he said. Hamilton's been ignored. Yep. It's been run by the NDP, the socialists, Opposition have destroyed the city for years. Now, now these companies are flowing into Hamilton because of our great MVP. There you go. All right. Uh, nothing like self-aggrandizement. Uh, anyway, uh, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, of course, is with us uh, in studio. Uh, first of all, thanks for coming in today. Uh, you have been extremely active on social media, as has been a few other people in response to what the premier mm-hmm. said. Uh, give me your give me your thoughts when you heard this. Well, my first thought was this is ridiculous and it's mendacious. It's not true. It's just not true. Yeah. And I don't mind when a government comes out and takes credit for economic prosperity, even though they've only been around for a year and a half and it's been going on for you know five years plus. Everybody kind of does that. Every government comes in and says whatever's happening that's good, we own it, right? Uh, fine, it's not accurate, but th- whatever. But w- to say that Hamilton has been destroyed. Um, by socialists. I mean, leave aside the socialist partisan attack for a second. I'm not going to sit and defend socialism. The point is, the city hasn't been destroyed. We have been seeing years of investment from all political parties. We've seen all kinds of activities on the ground. Neighborhoods in Hamilton working to bring themselves up. We've seen the, the huge fight for the LRT. We've seen all the work of the Chamber of Commerce. I mean, we as a community have worked very, very hard. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have incredible disparity still in our city and pockets of real poverty and issues around racism. We absolutely do. There's more work to be done. But Hamilton has been in a comeback for a number of years, as Terry Cook pointed out. And Keenan Loomis uh, from the Chamber of Commerce was quick on Twitter to say, actually, we're number two in North America for tech. And actually, we have one of the most diversified economies, according to the Conference Board of Canada. In other words, if a premier is going to stand up in Queen's Park, in our place, for, you know, and say something that is not only completely inaccurate about a city, but it's frankly insulting to 500,000 plus people that he is now the premier of. We are all his constituents because he is the premier. This is not a campaign snarky comment that we might expect from a divisive politician like Doug Ford. He's premier now, and I think he owes an apology to Hamiltonians. Well, this is the guy that, as I was just saying to Andrew Horvath a couple of minutes ago, that 24 hours before that was talking about it's time to bring this country together it's time for unification it's never been worse the separation uh, that lasted about 15 minutes and then he goes in with a rant like this and it's such an unforced error i mean he was literally given one across the plate by donna skelly it was such a setup all he had to do was swing the bat and hit a home run talking about new investment in hamilton instead what he does is he tries to go some weird punt and trips over his own feet on the plate i mean this is brutal it wasn't necessary it's not helpful to their agenda it doesn't set a new kinder, gentler tone. They're coming into an economic announcement this afternoon, and they've got this now to deal with. And this is the third show I've done on this today, Bill, from two other regions. Everyone heard it across the province. It looks bad on our city. I wish there were more people who held political office in this city that were doing what I've been doing this morning and standing up for the record for Hamilton, but I haven't seen it yet. Uh, no, I've been watching. Uh, I, I think one or two councillors have responded so yeah. far. Brad Clark, I saw just a couple of minutes ago, and, and some other business leaders. Uh, and, and that's that's something that we'll get into in a second here. Uh, but it's if, the fact of the matter is, is, if you try to read between the lines, what Ford is basically saying is, I'm ticked off at Hamilton because you don't elect conservatives. And listen, that's a, I've heard that line uh, on the OSHA for years when Lauren was my co-host, always saying that if Hamilton keeps electing socialists, we're never going to get a seat at the table. We're never going to get the kind of economic stimulus that we'd get if we had a governing party in power, so this is a this is not an un, this is not a new narrative, but you know that's a, that's an opinion.
opinion from a pundit. That's not the premier standing in Queen's Park talking about a city of 500,000 plus people. That is a city that is being watched across the country for our renaissance. I've just, uh, someone referenced that, you know, we're kind of like a, a Pittsburgh story. We have found a new way, a new way. We, we've moved away from sort of more manufacturing to these high tech and healthcare and we, agriculture. We've got so much going on in this city to have the premier reduce it to some sort of a partisan thing that Hamilton's been destroyed for years by socialists, that, that's just not fair and it's not true. And it's quite frankly a bit lame because, well, you know, we've all heard he, He's painting a picture here as if nothing good happened in the city until he became premier, and that we were going through some nuclear winter and then nothing happened, that, that, which is totally false. And, and I'm, I'm not going to hold the water for any other political party, but the fact of the matter is, is we have a new football arena here. We've got a new stadium, obviously. Uh, the enhancements to McMaster University, to Mohawk College, uh, the, the, the mental health center at St. Joseph's up on the mountain, those were all funded by previous governments, correct not by me, this government. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the billion-dollar funding envelope on LRT, which is the reason why a number of investors have come to the city, uh, came from the former government, a liberal provincial government. Now, Doug Ford might not have killed the project, but the fact is that the LRT is one of the reasons for some of this stimulus. There have been a lot of different, you know, success, they always say that uh, success has many fathers and victory is an, is an orphan, or uh, defeat is an orphan. Hamilton's in a success right now. We've had many fathers and mothers. <laughs> There's been many, many people from various parties and various walks of life who have brought the city to where it is. Our arts and culture scene alone has done a tremendous amount in our food scene to make this a vibrant, interesting city. So, you know, if he wants to try to take credit that his government came along and saved Hamilton, Hamilton, fine, it's not true, but whatever. But to throw in there an insult that we've been destroyed, I mean, that, that hurts our brand. And it's, and it's just deeply unfair to people in Hamilton. And I would hope that any city in the province, I don't care what city it is, if the premier stood up in the legislature and said that you'd been destroyed, uh, I hope that any city would come out and say, are you kidding? What? That's not fair. Apologize. Look, and I, I don't want to even get into political stripes uh, because I've got concerns, serious concerns about some of the people that we send to Queen's Park and to Ottawa uh, from all parties. Uh, sure. Some of them are, are just place sitters and, and some of them are pretty active and some of them stand by this community. Uh, and, I've, and again, from all different political parties. But for him to simply say, if you're not a conservative, if you're not a member of Ford Nation, uh, then you're all of a sudden. And, and again. Uh, to, to use that sort of terminology, uh, first of all, it's incorrect. It's, it's, it's not the proper descriptor of what's going on here. But second of all, it's just as if there's us and, uh, and anybody is not one of us is the bad people. You're the bad guys. Well, well, it's divisive. You know, and it's the kind of thing that Trump said about Baltimore. You know, and if, if Ford doesn't want to be called the Trump of the North, I know he goes down to the U.S. and says on Fox and stuff how much he supports Trump. But, you know, I've tried really hard not to say he's Trump because he's not Trump. He might have some similar populist style. He might be, you know, sort of likes to have the same kind of rhetoric when he's actually going to go out and denigrate a city and it's untrue and unfair, like Trump did with Baltimore, um, then that is very Trump-like. And and he owns that. You know, he said it. it. Like I said, unforced error. All he had to do was stand up and talk about the investment and hit the ball out of the park that Donna Skelly served up to him. But instead, what does he do? Is he takes a jab at all of Hamilton to what? Poke at Andrea Horvath because he doesn't like socialists? I mean, I'm not going to sit here and defend socialism. I will say, though, that the Arkells, and you played their song, People's Champ, off the top of, the, of our segment, the Arkells were quick on Twitter to say, you know, some would say that what's happening in the Rust Belt cities is due to globalism. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and he went on about how companies aren't paying their workers. Not it's not an it's not socialism's fault. So if you have to have one of our rock bands come out and correct our premier on what macroeconomics or whatever, uh, you have to wonder whether or not Ford should maybe go back into hiding for a few more months until he gets it together. Yeah, it's interesting about that. And I, I mentioned this to the guys before on the, the subject of the Arkells. The people that adopt this city as their home are some of the most fervent <laughs> defenders of this city. Have you noticed? Me yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Case in point. Well, because we arrive here. And yeah. I remember the first time I saw, I never heard of Hamilton. I was just, someone was driving me between Toronto and another city. And we came down the 403 on a summer day. And I thought, what is this beautiful, gleaming city rising out of the trees? I never, that was my first impression. And then when you get here and you see the old bones and the great history and the, you know, the rough and tumble politics, it's a fun town. And seeing it come 
come around from where it was when I got here 20 years ago has been really amazing. It's been a lot of blood, sweat and tears by a lot of people, emphasis on the tears. Uh, but you know what? It's a city that loves each other and loves its history and its potential. And and so it's there's a reason why I think a lot of us who come to Hamilton are like, why are you guys being hard on yourself? This is gorgeous. You actually have a two, two-tier city geographically. It's beautiful. Uh, and you're right in the middle of some of the best action in the country. So, uh, you know, I'm not surprised that a lot of us adopt Hamilton and, and fall in love with it and do a lot to defend it. I would like to see our mayor doing what I'm doing right now. And maybe he has and maybe he will. Uh, but this is, if there's one job that's clearly the job of a mayor, it's a bully pulpit to get out there and I and say, defend your city. And I can't imagine that if Doug Ford had said in the legislature something like this, that Toronto had been destroyed, that Mayor Tory wouldn't have been on every single station by 9 a.m. this morning, setting the record straight and speaking up for Torontonians. It's their responsibility. Elected officials. And and, and listen, they're... Elected officials have varying levels of talent and, and sometimes pull. And yes, sometimes party politics plays into that. If you're not part of the governing party, we get that. So maybe you can't deliver uh, like somebody else can. But you should de- su- support this city. You should defend this city against all, uh, in, in whether it's in the legislature, whether it's in parliament, whether it's uh, in, in, in a community. I can all but guarantee, had the mayor called some of the other stations that I've been on this morning, their newsroom would have bumped me off the air and put him on as it should be, right? And a tweet would be nice. Is a tweet so difficult? The Arkells and the Chamber of Commerce were on this thing almost immediately when it came out yesterday afternoon. So I have been critical of the mayor's slow response on other critical issues, uh, especially around pride and other issues in the last few months. Uh, I just hope that... um, he and his comms team, and I, I never want to blame the comms team because it's always the leader who hires and sets the tone, but realizes that, you know what, the rest of us are having to pick up the slack on this because we are not comfortable with something like that just going unchallenged. It shouldn't go in any town should stand up for itself when the premier of a province puts you down like this. Well, and look, at I understand it's the same team, but I mean, I'm, I'm a little concerned that Donna Skelly has not responded in kind too. And it, it's, it, do we take her silence to mean she agrees with the premier? Well, and I put out immediately asking for Donna Skelly to ask the premier to apologize seriously Um, she set up that I don't know if she knew that he was going to take that kind of crack at her hometown but she more than anyone should be the most angry about this because that was supposed to be her moment for her city and it ended up looking bad on her and on him so she should be asking for an apology unless she agrees and if she agrees that's just really sad well and again that's uh, that's a poor representation of this community and especially if she is the only sitting member from from this area uh, that's there uh, we expect her to carry the ball for us and she's in the same clip it was her moment moment, yeah. you know? And, and if I were her, I wouldn't be thrilled that her moment got sort of sabotaged by this partisan, she might agree with the partisan jab, but to say that Hamilton has been destroyed for years, I mean, come on. Uh, the, no, no MP or MPP or city councilor or mayor should put up with that. And, and that's parochial. I get that. And, and that's politics. But, I mean, to dad denigrate a, compu- a complete city like this, I just found uh, unconscionable for them to be able to do that. You, now, you have mentioned uh, you've done some other media today. A uh, mm-hmm. b- busy day for you today already. Uh, what kind of response are you getting? Are there, is there an incredul- incredulous response to say, wait a second, this is not the message we're getting from Hamilton? I'm getting a lot of zombie jokes. Mm-hmm. I'm getting people like, can you take the phone call or have your phone lines been destroyed? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, other cities are, uh, at least people in the media always seem to have a bit of a dark sense of humor. <laughs> so I'm getting a lot of that. But But people are also... Uh, making the comment of, you know, where's the mayor? You know, just interesting that there hasn't been this kind of what you would expect to be a response. Um, and that's why I say I'm sure that they would take his call if he decided that he wanted to speak about this. Is a, It's actually a perfect opportunity from a PR perspective because you people are if you called up any day and said, hey, I, I'd like to talk about how great Hamilton is. You're probably not going to get on the, the big primetime time news slots. But when you've been insulted by the premier as a city, just about everybody will give you some time to speak up and defend and tout. Hamilton's economic advantages and and promote the city. I mean, this is this is a, this is why I'm doing it. It's a wonderful opportunity to not just set the record straight, but to talk about all the great things that are happening in the city and to try to get more of that. So it's just a missed opportunity uh, by our leadership locally, at least by the mayor that I've seen. And again, uh, in case he's doing something else I haven't seen, I, I want to be fair. Well, yeah, we'll we'll find out in the passage of time, I guess. The, the thing is, because I one of the staffers here this morning we were talking about this earlier this and said, well, maybe they're just concerned about you know ramifications you know if he cuts off funding for this or that or we're not going to get this 
I don't care. You know, we'll deal with that if that's the kind of decision that, and, and petty decision that this government's going to make. Your first responsibility as an elected official, whether you're an MPP, an MP, a councillor, whomever, is to defend this city. Absolutely. And, and to sing the praises of this city. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, we're not hearing a whole lot at this stage right now, and that's the thing that I think concerns me, including from the MPP that, that actually asked the question in the first place. And you can even make some hay out of it, right? You can have some fun with it. You can get national attention on how cool and fun your response is. You could do something clever in front of the Hamilton sign by noon today, and it would be picked up across the country. And, and so uh, it's one thing not to have that natural instinctive sense of pride and urgency to correct the public record for the city that you represent. It's quite another thing to uh, also not know how to leverage it and, and uh, get some good attention for the city because people respect that. If you're able to, and uh, you can rope in the Arkells, they're already involved, right? Mm-hmm. You guys did it with the people. So the point is that uh, it's another missed opportunity and uh, unfortunately, from my perspective anyway, some lackluster leadership that seems to be always a couple of beats behind for Hamilton and I think that we deserve better. Any long-lasting concerns about this? No, uh, you know what I think that um, I think that because people have spoken up, because some councillors and the chamber was so quick uh, and to address it, which is what they should do. You know, they don't have to be partisan. But I used to run a chamber of commerce. You certainly want to set the record straight about the economic. I'm wondering if Keenan knew this was going to happen because he had a really detailed response pretty quickly. But and you know what? He's, he's just bang, bang, bang. He had all the talking he's, points. He's good at his job. And yeah. the irony is, though, the exact same time that the premier was standing up in Queens Park and saying this this flawed, incorrect statement about Hamilton, there was an actual thing happening in Hamilton, a summit where they were putting up slides about Hamilton's having the big and the fastest growing airport and, you know, and a billion dollars. And I mean, at the same time. So it's not like it was difficult for anybody to pull together these brag points for the city. The point is, again, it isn't my job to do it. It's not Keenan to a certain extent. It's his to in a limited economic capacity. But, you know, moreover, where's the fight? You know, Hamilton, I've always loved this city because it's got fight. And I just wish that uh, we see more fight from our mayor, not just on this, but as you know, Bill, I wish there had been more more fight around the issue of white supremacists gathering in front of our city hall and in protecting our marginalized communities. I, I'd like to see more. But you know what? That's what elections are for, and, and we'll see what happens. Well, I was channeling Monty Python earlier this morning from the Holy Grail. You know, <laughs> Despite what you hear from Queen's Park, we're not dead yet. No, and, and you know what? I actually think that a lot of people do, to your point earlier about what are people thinking about Hamilton, uh, people think that Hamilton has become a pretty cool place. It used to be I would do shows in other cities, and, and people didn't even want to say I was from Hamilton. Now everybody on the breaks is like, so how does, much does it cost to live there? So is the food scene really that great? So we have really turned a corner in terms of our brand perception as a city. We've turned it even faster if we dealt with some of the issues we, we're struggling with, like racism and income disparity and affordable housing and stuff. But we have turned the corner in terms of a general perception that Hamilton is a cool place that's experiencing a comeback, and that's good. Well, sadly, I guess that message hasn't got to Queens Park, or at least to the corner office anyway. Well, hopefully it will. There's been enough people tagging the premier today on Twitter. Somebody should see it. hope so. <laughs> Laura Babcock uh, from Power Group, as always, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.